Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. It's Saturday, and that means the Leading Saints podcast drops a new episode, and this is it. My name is Kurt Frankham, and I'm here with, what's your name? That's my son Taysom, who's talking in a weird voice, and he uh, walked in as I was about to do this intro, so I welcome him as my pre-guest. Now, uh, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead, and we do that through a podcast, through a newsletter, our website at leadingsaints.org. We have virtual events. Uh, We just finished an event in Idaho. We did Leading Saints Live with Jason Hunt. It was phenomenal. You can find all the resources, the recordings of that on leadingsaints.org. And uh, we create content to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. So if you're new here for the first time, I welcome you. We'll transfer your records into this podcast and you will love it. Now, in this episode, we talk with Chad Ford, who is the author of a phenomenal book I've recently been able to read called Dangerous Love, Transforming Fear and Conflict at Home, at Work, and in the World. And you could probably sneak in there at church as well. Now, On this website, it says Chad Ford has been living five lives simultaneously for nearly 20 years. He's been an international conflict mediator, a college professor at BYU-Hawaii, a senior consultant and facilitator for the Arbinger Institute, an executive board member for Peace Players, and a writer, analyst, and entrepreneur covering the NBA and NBA draft for ESPN. Now, I would love love to talk about the NBA in this episode, but uh, that's just not what we do here at Leading Saints. But we talk about his his book, and it is is phenomenal. This is a book that in your Ward Council book club, yeah, you should include this and talk about it because conflict is something that every organization has to deal with. Even these organizations that are led by priesthood keys, that are full of set-apart individuals called of God, like, yeah, conflict still exists, and actually, that's a good thing. Conflict should exist. If it doesn't exist, that's probably a problem. So Chad and I had a great conversation that you're about to hear where we talk about conflict. But most importantly, just how to how to see people as people, but most importantly, how to see people as children of God. And that is where leadership begins. And especially there may be a conflict between you and somebody else in your ward. Maybe it's between you and the bishop. Maybe it's between you and uh, another leader on the ward council, whatever it is. And that's important to resolve. And Chad gives some great tips and ideas of how to resolve that. Of course, you don't fit all in this uh, one-hour interview. You got to check out the book, and you'll love it. So, Taysom, do you want to say, I'd like to introduce... I'd like to introduce... This is just like primary. Chad Ford. Chad Ford. The author of Dangerous Love. The author of Dangerous Love. All right, let's do it. 
Today, I have the opportunity to connect through the powers of the Zoom with Chad Ford. How are you, Chad? I'm great. How are you? Very good. Well, I'm excited to have you uh, on the Leading Saints podcast and to talk about your recent book. And, and you are connecting with me here from uh, Hawaii. Is that right? Yeah, I'm in Laie, Hawaii right now at BYU Hawaii. So is that like the dream job? Like if you're going to teach at a school, I mean, that's not a bad location, huh? It's the dream, dream job nice. in the church. It's a beautiful campus. You get to work with the international church. We have, you know, 3,000 students from 100 countries here. And so you get to be part of what is the growing internationalization of the church in a really, really cool way. And just, you know, Hawaii is awesome. And the Pacific Island culture is amazing. And this is a great place to raise a family as well. So how did you end up in Hawaii? You know, I actually, I served a mission in San Bernardino, California. Actually, I'll take it even a step back further. When I joined the church, I was living in Kansas City, Missouri. And unbeknownst to a lot of people, there's a significant Pacific Islander population in Independence, Missouri. Hmm. And, you know, my bishop was Tongan for a while and, you know, Samoan, Hawaiian, what have you. And so as a teenager, I would get experienced the Pacific Island culture, loved it. In fact, wasn't clear until I went to BYU Provo as a freshman that the church wasn't just like that everywhere. I actually w- was in for culture shock when I went to Provo and and saw, you know, different sort of cultural manifestations in the church. And then on my mission in San Bernardino, California, I served in both a Samoan ward for a while and a Tongan ward for a while with Samoan and Tongan companions. And they sort of convinced me to not go back to BYU, but to come out to BYU Hawaii and try it out there. And I and I I really did love the Pacific Island culture. I also just thought it'd be really fun you know, to come out and try it out. And so I came here, I fell in love with it. I ended up graduating with my undergraduate degree, went off to grad school and then came back here 10 years later to start the McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding, which is a peace building, the first of its kind really in the church, peace building institute out of BYU Hawaii. Wow. That's fantastic. And so is, is your main job then teaching courses there or I know you do a few yeah. things. Yeah. So I run the center. I'm here, but I teach, you know, three courses in the intercultural peace building department, which is a both a major and a certificate program here at BYU Hawaii. And then our center runs a number of other projects, both at the university and in the community that are around conflict resolution or what have you. And I I sort of oversee those projects as well at the university. Obviously, everything is sort of cooled down with COVID. We don't have any students here yeah. at BYU Hawaii at the moment. Everything is virtual and online. And so, uh, you know, what we're doing today is pretty much my day every day uh, talking oh, cool. on Zoom. Yeah, yeah. And you recently uh, just published a book called Dangerous Love, Transforming Fear and Conflict at Home, at Work, and in the World. What tells the, the journey to, to writing this book? Yeah, you know, it, it started, interestingly enough, I was teaching an intro to peacebuilding class and was really cobbling together a bunch of ideas that I had learned both in grad school, but also just stuff that I experiences that I had gleaned from working as a mediator and because of that, we didn't really have steady readings. And so a lot of our students are like, you know, when are we going to, you know, your lectures, like I'm recording your lectures, when are you going to write those down? And, and so it actually started with, I'm going to create a textbook and, you know, for this class, and I'm going to really talk about peace building and sort of the way that I see it. But about halfway through it, I realized I don't like textbooks. Nobody likes textbooks. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> likes to read textbooks. It's boring. If I'm bored, if I'm feeling bored, then everybody else is going to feel bored as well. And so I, I sort of threw it out. And began thinking about a different way of writing it and decided I was going to write it by, you know, telling a series of stories that have happened to me and my clients and sort of deriving principles sort of out of those, out of those stories 
throughout the book. And when I test drove that with our students, the reaction was dramatically different. Like, you know, people were really excited. They were really engaged. We got a lot of feedback on the book. And then, and then I, t- I tweaked it once more because I didn't want it just landing with students. I wanted it landing with moms that have four kids at home. I wanted it to land with business people that, you know, were struggling with conflict managing employees, for example. I wanted it with community or political leaders who were out there. So I just kept sending the draft out and asking people to mark it up and say, what would be helpful or what's missing here? or What would you like to know? And I would take that back and rework it um, into the book so it could really live up to its subtitle, which is Transforming Fear and Conflict at Home, at Work, and in the World. I really wanted it to be able to hit whoever was reading it in a place that it felt like this was a usable guide for me, a tool chest, if you will, to be able to solve conflict in my own life, wherever, wherever that is. Yeah. And obviously, it's a book not meant specifically for church members, but you probably could add for the church for church as well in that uh, subtitle, right? Yeah. Well, look, I teach at an LDS university and have been deeply influenced by my faith. And all of that seeps into my understanding of conflict and the understanding of conflict resolution. And even though you're right, this was for a general audience and, and you know, frankly, you know, a secular audience, it's not even a, really a religious book. At, towards the end of the book, I quote the Book of Mormon at one point. Yeah, uh, the last great. chapter of the book, I talk about a priesthood blessing that I gave my father towards the end of his life and didn't want to shy away from that either. That's part of who I am. It's something that I'm very transparent about in my work. I work with Jews, Muslims, all sorts of Christians, all sorts of people that don't have any religious faith at all. But that is part of my identity and who I am. And while I'm certainly in my work not trying to convert you, part of my conversion and my discipleship has changed the way that I see conflict and the way that I see the world and how I think I can be helpful. Yeah, that's great. And explain as far as how it, how it's connected to the Arbinger Institute. I think many of our listeners would be familiar, familiar with uh, their work and some of the books they've written. And, and how is it connected? And maybe explain for those who don't aren't familiar with the Arbinger Institute. Yeah, the Arbinger Institute wrote the foreword to the book. And the Arbinger Institute is really based off of the work of Terry Warner, who is an LDS philosopher and who uh, taught for many years at BYU in the philosophy department, who worked up a theory around self-deception, the problem of having a problem, not knowing I have a problem and resisting any suggestion that I have the problem. And their first book, Leadership and Self-Deception, has sold millions and millions of copies. It's considered one of the great leadership books of all time. Uh, There's another book, Anatomy of Peace, that they've written that is more related to conflict. And I was introduced to them as a young professor here. A student gave me a pre-publication copy of Anatomy of Peace, and I was working in the Middle East at the time. And if you've read the book, you know that Arbinger tells their book completely in the form of a story. It's like a fictional story that teases out all the principles that they wrote. And, and, and much of it happens to do with an Israeli and a Palestinian. And so I was really intrigued by this and like, oh, you're doing a lot of work in the Middle East only to find out that the author had never even been. And you know, I thought it was really interesting. And I wanted to see whether those principles that they primarily applied in the workplace were to sort of personal transformation could work in the socio-political context. And so I actually started partnering with Arbinger on some projects in the Middle East, in Israel, with Palestinians and Israelis and really started working with them around conflict-related issues just as a consultant. I, you know, I've never worked formally with Arbinger, but as a consultant, and we partnered on a lot of projects. And so I approached them several years ago about this book and said, look, Arbinger's principles 
are foundational to a lot of my understanding about conflict. I use them quite a bit in my work. I want to include them here, but I want to go beyond what Arbinger is doing and think about this in, in the context that primarily Arbinger doesn't work at, which is just in the, in the conflict-related fields. And they gave me their blessing and wrote uh, you know, a nice forward you know, to the book. And so if you're very familiar with leadership and self-deception or anatomy of peace, I think this is going to be a continuation of these principles and how they apply in conflict, both in all of those settings. But if you've never heard of the Arbinger Institute before, you don't have to have read those books to follow along. I explain those principles multiple times throughout the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. So let's jump into conflict in general, in the, in the context of being a church leader and in, in our church culture, because conflict can be uncomfortable. It can be yeah. something that when it arises in a, in a Sunday school class or in a ward council, we maybe uh, rush to diffuse it as easily as possible so we can move on to just talking about who's bringing brownies to the barbecue and everybody's happy, right? So yeah. unpack this concept of conflict as you have understood it in the context of the church. Yeah, you know, let's let's start with this. We have a lay ministry in the LDS church, which means that our leaders aren't called because of pastoral qualifications. So it might be in a lot of other churches that if you're a pastor or a priest or what have you, that you'll actually get training in conflict resolution. You get training in marriage, marriage counseling, you know, training in a lot of these sorts of things that come up in the process of pastoral care. For our church, you know, it's not you're there. called, yeah. it's, it's not there at all. I mean, you're just called into a position sometimes because you might be the best person for that position, or sometimes because the Lord wants you to grow and you have a very steep learning curve ahead of you, right? And I, right. I think we probably experience both. But if you think about the day-to-day work that goes into being a Relief Society president or an elders quorum president or you know, a member of the bishopric or a member of the stake presidency, a lot of it actually has to do with conflict, right? So we're counseling people that are struggling in a relationship, struggling in a marriage. We're working with people that have lost jobs or struggling with addiction or abuse or what have you. I mean, a lot of our work is attending to that. And while we have some spiritual tools... You know, we can counsel people to prayer, to pray and to fast and to read scriptures and to hold family home evening and things like that. We often don't have the harder set of tools around sort of how to get on people through conflict. And so I think because of that, and in connection, there's also this cultural belief rooted in scripture that contention equals conflict and contention is of the devil, right? uh, right? That when (laughs) when we have conflict in our lives, it's somehow sinful. Right. There's something sort of wrong with me. I'm not keeping my covenants. There's something that that's going wrong in my life. And so there's a stigma around it. And so what do we do as Latter-day Saints? We tend to avoid conflict. We tend to uh, sweep it under the rug. We tend to pretend it's not there. If something awkward is happening, we tend to try to look the other way or move fast it, past it quickly. And I think it's a combination of we have a fear of conflict, in part because we have a fear of sin. And we have a fear of conflict because we don't really have the tools and don't really have the models about how to go about transforming that conflict in a collaborative and constructive way. And when you put those two things together, the stigma on the one end and the lack of tools on the other, I think it can explain a lot about why often members of the church really struggle with conflict. They really struggle with conflict avoidance. And I do this exercise with my students. I talk a little bit about it in the book where I ask people for metaphors of conflict. And this is something really early on. I want to see your orientation. And so I'll ask people, you know, what's a metaphor for conflict? And, you know, people will pick things like volcano or 
you know, it feels like I'm drowning or, you know, you know, all these different, usually negative things. But one of the questions I'll ask our students is what is conflict in the church or in your faith look like? And almost to a T, and again, we have a very international student body. They talk about it in terms of conflict avoidance. They talk about it in terms of pretending it's not there, wearing a mask. It's the thing in the room that nobody wants to discuss. And as much as I understand the inclination, it's not healthy and it's not particularly helpful. Conflict doesn't go away just because we wish it away or even just because we pray it away, right? There's always sort of action in connection to that. And so, you know, a lot of our work over the last, you know, 15 years here at the McKay Center is creating that culture within our young people who are coming to church and doing a lot of consulting in the community and, you know, around the world around this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a, the uh, default position is that uh, we sort of want conflict to go away. And so we've tried and figure out how to go away. But a lot of, a lot of scenarios, you know, especially in a leadership dynamic, you almost should get to a point with the tools and things where you, you want that conflict to come to the surface because there's some level of growth in the conflict, right? There is. And so look, if I, if I view conflict as destructive, uh, right, and, and it's just naturally destructive or sinful, then of course, I want to get as far away from that as I want. People don't like pain. People don't like destructive things. And, and certainly, you know, we have an aversion to sin and we don't want to be sinful. Right. And so we're going to try to get as far, we're going to get as much distance between us and that conflict as we can. And the problem is it doesn't go away. We have to maneuver more and more to avoid it. It gets harder and harder to do so. And in the process, what's happening is we, we aren't able to collaboratively engage in problem solving with the other person. And we're probably going to go grow in separation in our relationship, right? We're going to get further and further away from that person or that group of people that we're struggling with a conflict to avoid it. So why do some people just quit going to church? You know, for example, they have a problem with somebody in the ward and it's easier just to not see them every Sunday or have to roll our eyes when they say something, you know, in Relief Society or Elders Quorum President and we're thinking in our heads, oh, they're such a hypocrite. You know, if people really knew, you know, what was going on between us, they would feel differently. And so we just, we just walk away, you know, from it in, in ways that aren't healthy or productive at all. But you think about that, of course, that's going to be an, a natural instinct, right? If we have a fear of something, our first instinct is usually flight, right? Like I yeah. get as far away from it as I can. If I can't flee, then I fight, right? But what's interesting in our faith is that that fighting is generally discouraged culturally, right? Like we're yeah. not supposed to be debating or arguing or going after each other in church. And so what, what people do is they either accommodate, they just smile and say, okay, I'm going to be really righteous here and just be easy and get to get along with, or, you know, I'm going to smile and say, okay, and then talk about you behind your back later when it's, <laughs> when it's okay to, okay to do so. And so, you know, in so many of the situations that I see, and I, I do work with a lot of the LDS population, more so than I see in the general community, you know, we'll sit down on a marital conflict that's been going on for 15 years and they haven't even talked about it, right? And there's so much shame that's involved with it that they, they haven't really discussed it or addressed it because they thought if I talk about it, it becomes real and I don't want to have a marriage that has a conflict in it or, you know, a, a conflict between ward members or whatever. If we talk about it, we're admitting to something that we don't ever want to admit to. And so part of what I try to do at really from the beginning is let have us let go of that shame. There's nothing wrong with conflict. There might be something wrong with contention, but conflict and contention are not 
synonymous with each other. Conflict can be destructive or it can be constructive. It can be actually really helpful. It can bring our relationships closer together. There's so many positives that can come out of conflict. If we pursue it destructively, then I get the point of the scripture, right? The contention is of the devil, but we don't have to pursue it that way. And if we can start to see conflict as neutral, then I can make choices about how I pursue that conflict in a way that actually can bring about peace as opposed to the contention. Yeah. And that really connects with the title of the book of, of dangerous love. Like there's risk when there's conflict involved, right? And we, and we can either retreat from that risk or lean into it. And that's sort of where it gets dangerous, right? Right. Well, if you think about it, if I'm afraid of something, then again, because of that retreat, we talk about easy love and you know, easy love is the sort of love that we often think about when we hear the word love. It means that I either am romantically connected to you, or that there's some sort of attraction, that sort of love, or it means that I like you, right? And I'll say that I love my friends just like I love pizza or chocolate or, you know, other things as well. And, and in both of those ways of sort of thinking about love, we love someone because of a benefit that they're providing us, right? They either taste good or they're great company or they love me back or, you know, they're kind to me or they provide companionship or they provide financial stability or, you know, all those reasons that will say why we love somebody. So what happens when conflict rears its head and you and I aren't on the same page on something or, right, like we're having a problem solving something together. All of a sudden, easy love takes a run for it. It's gone, right? And now I'm left with, well, should I be hanging out with this person anymore? Or maybe we shouldn't be in business together anymore? Or what's wrong with this person? I'm not sure they're really doing all the spiritual work that they need to do. I start to question them. I start to question the relationship. Instead of saying, okay, I'm having conflict with this person, can I love somebody that I don't like in the moment? Can I love someone that I disagree with right now that is on a different page than me? Can I keep seeking to try to understand them and find a way forward with them as opposed to saying, oh, we're different, ooh. I'm done. I'm done with you. And that sort of love, I believe, is actually the sort of love that the scriptures are talking about. I don't see a lot of romantic love discussion um, in the scriptures. It doesn't seem to be heavily on the Lord's mind or on the prophet's mind throughout this. And I don't actually even see a lot of discussion about friendship or like, or, you know, the sort of easy love that's there. Again, There might be some allusions to it occasionally in the scriptures and relationships that sort of look that way in the scriptures, but it's not a heavy topic that's discussed. But when we start talking about agape, right, which is the Greek sort of word for love that's used in the New Testament, the word that Jesus is using multiple times, or when John says God is love, he, he is saying God is agape, or when Paul is talking about charity in the scriptures, he's using the word agape. That's a Greek notion of love. That is very similar, actually, to the way that Paul describes it in the scriptures, right? It is kind, it is generous, it envieth not, it seeketh not its own, it believeth all things, it hopeth all things. It's the sort of love that I have towards a person, right, that isn't about me. It's not about me and what I'm getting. It's about how I am giving. I love you because you are a child of God. I love you because there's something divine I'm about you, not because of some sort of personal benefit um, that you have for me. That's a different sort of word. And in English, unfortunately, we only have one. But in, you know, in Greek, they they broke those down into multiple different words. So you knew sort of what you meant when you said love. And so now what's dangerous is feeling love towards someone who I don't like right now in the moment or who is behaving in a way that's frustrating to me 
or who I've tried in the past to make this work and, and they've been stubborn and they haven't been cooperating or someone that holds a social belief or a political belief that's dramatically different than mine. And I just ask myself, how in the world could they think or, or believe that way, right? In those moments, love seems scary uh, to us. It seems too vulnerable. It almost seems like too much. And when we hear Jesus say, turn the other cheek or love your enemies, we want it to be something more metaphorical than actually real. Yeah. And in those moments, I'm just thinking of a, you know, this example of, you know, being in a ward council where maybe there's this moment where as the bishopric, you felt inspired to call that person. And now it's like, ah, maybe that was an inspiration. Maybe I should really, I really should have prayed about that one a few more times because now I have this person that's introducing conflict into this organization. But now to see it more as like, no, this is an opportunity for me to engage with that conflict, with that individual, because that is a pure sense of love, right? Right. I'll tell you what isn't love is smiling and just nodding our heads because on the outward, it seems like we're being so calm and we're being so accommodating, but inside our hearts are at war, you know, towards that person on the inside. We're like, who does this person think they are? Why are they doing that? Or why are they making this so difficult right now? We're not doing anybody any favors by just nodding our heads and smiling and pretending like everything's okay. We're also not doing anybody any favors by horribleizing them or turning them into a monster or making them out to be something they're not because they hold a different belief than what we do. What it requires out of us is an engagement. But in conflict, again, because of the fear, our instinct is to get distance, right? Not to engage. And so our instincts in the moment are the opposite of what we actually sort of need to do. Whoever's the most difficult person for you in your ward is probably the person you need to get the closest to, right? But that's the opposite of how most of us, including me, will react at times. That's the person I want to steer the furthest away from. That's the person I want to make sure that I don't have to serve in a council with. That's the person for sure that I'm not going to invite over for dinner or sit next to at the ward activity. And that's actually the person that I believe discipleship calls upon us to engage, not to run from, but to engage. Yeah. And even, you know, I just think of those many bishopric meetings where we're, you know, contemplating different names and people to call and, and just to ask the question, who's the person I would, I'm least likely wanting to call right now? Cause it's easy to default to people who maybe think like us and maybe they're, we can relate to them. They'll be easier to work with, but to think, Ooh, like that would be really hard to have that person there. Cause I don't think we jive very well. And to sit with that and think, what can I learn from like, what am I missing? And how can I connect with that person on a deeper level? Because there's something, there's some engagement and deeper love that maybe I could discover in that interaction. Right. And I believe discipleship calls us to this. This is the calling of discipleship. Look who Jesus hangs out with in the new Testament. It's a pretty rough cast of characters, right? And in fact, the Pharisees are often quite disturbed by the company that Jesus keeps right? But to Jesus, it's not a problem at all because, right, he sees through all of that. He sees, he sees our spirits. He sees our value. He sees our worth, and he can cut through all of that. And so, the fact that he's interacting with lepers and prostitutes and publicans, all things that the Pharisees have written, people, Pharisees have written off, you know, for years as sinners, and therefore, I can't defile myself by being in their presence. Jesus is the opposite. And it has this powerful impact. Even his disciples are 
confused at times, <laughs> right, about what Jesus is doing. And I don't think we always read the scriptures and see ourselves that way, right? Think about who Jesus engages and think about who we engage on a day-to-day basis. And we want to be around the holiest people or the people that have all their act together or the, you know, the families that we admire or what have you. And, you know, I hear this experience over and over again. And even in my own personal life, I've experienced at times when people are having problems, sometimes serious problems, much of the ward goes away. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. I'm not sure I want my kids to hang around your family right now because that's sort of a weird thing that your family seems to be going through right now. And at a moment when people who are struggling, whether it be for sin or for some other reason, need their ward and need that fellowship the most is often the time when it turns down or goes off completely. And, you know, I've heard that so many times. I felt it when my family was going through something really tough for a while. And even my home teachers quit showing up, you know, for a while. And, you know, it was like at a time when we needed them the most. And, uh, you know, and so I, I think it's a reconceptualization yeah. of what discipleship really is. And if we can let go of that fear of conflict, if we can let go of that, I only have to love the people that I like, and I only have to love the people who are doing and behaving and believing the same things that I do. But instead, the call of Christ and the call of discipleship is to show love towards the sinner, to towards love towards the person who's struggling right now. I mean, that's a powerful call. And, you know, you ask dangerous love and, you know, to be honest, the book was after a book that I read in grad school by Martin Luther King called Strength to Love. Hmm. And it was a collection of sermons that Martin Luther King had written in the 50s and 60s into, uh, as he was a pastor at a church, he was the Reverend Martin Luther King. And he was imploring the people of his congregation to love white people while still engaged in civil disobedience, that they couldn't hate who their enemy was. And despite the racism, despite the, the actions that were going to come, they had to love their enemy. In fact, one of the sermons is literally titled loving your enemies. And, you know, when I read it, you know, for the first time as a student, I remember I, I was given it, given to it by an associate of Martin Luther King. And I was sitting under the tree under the, literally outside his office under a tree reading it. The gospel came alive to me in a way that had never quite come alive to me before, even though I'd been a missionary and done everything else, I saw something that King was talking about love and atonement and what Christ really means. And this idea that, you know, we hold in our faith that, you know, when Jesus kneels in Gethsemane and takes upon the sins of the world, he takes it upon for everyone, not just the people he likes, not just the people that are all doing the right thing, because there wouldn't be a need for an atonement if that was the case for the people who were going to reject him, for people who had betrayed him, for people who were, you know, couldn't understand his message and would never reject it. He bled for them too. And that that is dangerous love, right? That is the sort of love that says that regardless of how you see me, I see you so perfectly, so clearly that your needs and wants and desires matter to me just as much as my own. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be helpful to you. What an incredible example as we take the sacrament, you know, every Sunday as a reminder that Jesus showed us dangerous love. And now my question is, as I, as I take upon myself, his name, am I doing the same? 
at home, in my congregation, you know, what have you. Yeah. Oh, that's so powerful. And and I just think about, you know, just that interaction you you explained that so many times in our leadership experiences, we engage with different people and there's a lot of tough decisions that need to be, need to be made, fires to be put out, things to consider, but to, and it's, you know, you want to get to the, you want to solve the problem. You want to talk it through and, and make a decision, but to really see that these interactions with individuals, especially those that you often don't agree with, like that message coming through clearly to them is like, I want to understand you. I want to hear your point of view. Because oftentimes the thoughts come to me that, you know, for example, if a married couple came in and uh, was seeking for guidance and one, one is obviously the one that's bringing the conflict to the surface. And the person that wants the status quo is just saying, well, look like she or he, like they're the one that brought this up. They're the one that causes problem. And we often think, yeah, that's, what can we do to solve your problem in, rather than engage with it and say, well, how can we all change here, right? Like, how can yeah. we all learn and grow from this conflict? And that's that's dangerous, right? That is, right? Because think about what you just asked there. It means that I can't just externalize the conflict and blame it on everybody else. Yeah. I have to dismiss look at my, it, right? I can't, ha I have to look at my own. It also means that whatever their grievances are in the conflict, I have to take those seriously, even if they're offensive to me. Even if I think they're seeing me in completely the wrong way, I have to take it seriously how they see me right now. And I have to ask myself, in what ways have I contributed to that? And if the answer is nothing, and sometimes that is the truth, I, I really haven't done anything. The answer still is, in what ways have their life experiences that they're carrying with them contributed to the way that they're seeing me or the world right now? And how do I understand that with them? So that either I can be helpful to them and helping them see it another way, or if nothing else, I retain that level of empathy and compassion for them, even if I disagree with how they're seeing me or the situation in a moment. And all that requires vulnerability. It requires us to not be so sure of ourselves. It requires us to be, to quote Elder Uchtdorf, to be humble in our truth. And you know that sometimes as Latter-day Saints, that's something we struggle with. We talk a lot about pride, but we feel like we have an exemption when it comes to our truth about things and to recognize that other people have other truths and that those truths are truths to them in ways that are meaningful and powerful. And how do I lower myself in a certain way to be humble enough to engage with you wherever you are right now yeah. and not and wait until you raise to the level I think that you should be at but to engage with you wherever you are right now. Yeah. And that's truly what validation looks like. Oftentimes people confuse validation that we have to like agree with them or condone, you know, their actions or their point of view. But oftentimes, you know, validation is people just want to be understood. You don't have to agree with me, but I want to be understood. So I may come in and say, I was abducted by aliens last night and you won't believe the you know, the, the trip they took me on. And I, I don't know, I can't sleep at night because these aliens may come back and you and your mind might thinking this person is crazy, but to go to a place where you can say, wow, like if I was abducted by aliens, I'd be scared too. tell me more about that. Right. <laughs> yeah, or if I believed I was right. Right. Or even if this person has mental health issues, what, what must, must that be like? Right. Right. To carry, carry that weight. And have people probably look at you and roll your eyes all the time or not take you seriously or dismiss you or tell you that it's not real or, you know, all of those different things. What must that be like to carry that every day? Yeah. And so what, what starts to happen is that, you know, 
you know, I don't talk about this in the book, but you know, this is probably the right form to share it. One of the things I talk about in the book is that we try to see people as people, right? Instead of objects, they're real to me. Their needs, wants, and desires are just as real to me, you know, as my own. And I, like everybody, struggle with that from time to time. Again, the people that I like and that are easy to get along with totally see them as people, right? But people that are difficult to me or strangers to me, I'm I'm sort of an introvert. So that's one area where a lot of times I feel uncomfortable in social settings or, you know, what have you. Those are more difficult interactions for me. And so I started to notice over time that there's a connection between dangerous love and seeing people as people, a deep connection. The more that I see their humanity, the more that I see their life and their story, the more I'm able to practice dangerous love towards them. But I, I had a problem. And part of my problem was I'm not so good at that. <laughs> I, on a day-to-day basis, I get in my head. I'm really busy. I've got a hundred things that I do. I blow by people you know, all the time. I'm missing their humanity. And sometimes it even goes all the way, Kurt, to home. And then, you know, I've had a busy day and I have a child at home that's probably struggling, but I'm so caught up in what was going on that day, or I'm still trying to solve a problem at work or whatever, that I don't even pick up on it. Or my wife is exhausted, right? But I'm so caught up in my own exhaustion that I don't even stop to sort of recognize like what war she's been going through that day or whatever. And I knew at a certain point that if I was going to live everything that I want to teach, I need help. And so I decided I was going to do something different with my morning prayers every morning. They were going to look a little different. Instead of all the help me get through these tasks throughout the day, I was going to ask one singular question. I was going to do it every morning. And just one, one thing from the Lord, help me see at least one person in my life as a person today that I wouldn't normally see. Help me see them. Give me some sort of sense of helpfulness towards them and give me the courage to act on it right then you know, in the moment. And that to me, I believe would grow my spiritual sensitivity towards the humanity of other people around me, you know, and, and I didn't, I didn't say everybody at first, cause that was overwhelming to me, just one person, you know, every day. And the first day that I did it, it was like about three o'clock in the afternoon. And the student just comes to my, my, my mind, a student that I, that actually graduated um, that I hadn't thought about or talked about in a while. And, you know, I kind of dismissed it cause I was doing work and it came again. And it occurred to me, oh, wait a minute, maybe this is the answer, you know, to my <laughs> prayer right now. Yeah. And so I started thinking about the person for a minute and what I was reading, I thought, you know, maybe this would be helpful to them. So I went to the photocopier, I photocopied off the page. I sent them a little email saying, hey, just thinking about you, read this, thought you might like it, hope everything is well and sent off, you know, five minutes, mo tops. That evening, I get an email back that's a novel. I don't know why you felt like you needed to reach out to me, but I, I needed to hear from you like in this moment. And they started to talk about, you know, everything. And I, you know, I walked away and I was like, Oh, awesome. Then the next day, you know, pray again. And, you know, I'd noticed sometimes it'd be family members. Sometimes it'd be strangers. One day I um, was walking home from school and I walked by the ATM and I had a sense, take out $200 and you're going to give it to somebody. I've never had that sense before. And, and, I wasn't in a financial situation where $200 is just a no brainer, you know, for me or my, you know, my family. And I question it for a second, but I'm like, no, there's a sense. So I, I take it out. I start walking up the hill. I walk by this house. I feel a sense again, go to that, knock on that door, give them the $200. Uh, so I'm knocking on the door, super awkward. Remember, I'm an introvert. That's, this is not an easy conversation for me, even though I know most people wouldn't mind getting $200 if you're, you know, offering it. This young woman comes to the door and I say, look, I don't know you. And I know this is really awkward, but I just had a sense that you might need some help. And, um, you know, I have $200 here and I don't know what it's for, but 
you know, would you accept it? And she looked like shocked. Like, I didn't know she was going to lock the door or whatever, but she finally said, okay. And then she didn't say anything else. She walked and went home. And about three days later, I get a knock on my door in my office. And it's this woman. And she's like, I've been looking for you the last couple of days. And somebody finally told me who you were. And she just, she asked me, how did you know? I said, well, what do you mean? How do you know? She's like, my car was literally in the shop and you know, the bill came out to like $198. I just didn't have the money. And so they were holding it, but I needed my car to get to work. So I was literally praying and asking, you know, for a way for this to happen. And you knocked on my door like 30 minutes later. And, and, you know, it just occurred to me there, all of us are praying every day for help, right? Every day. And God doesn't, for the most part, just come down and drop $200 on a doorstep. That's not how it, how it works. God doesn't send emails. He doesn't, you know, send text messages. He uses us to do that. Um, right. He, he uses us as his disciples, you know, to go and do that work. And it just opened up this world for me. I still do it all these years later of, you know, part of my journey in life is that I'm out looking for my brothers and sisters that are hurting, that are struggling, that need a kind word or need a meal or uh, need a pat on the back um, or whatever. And I need to be living in a way that I'm alive to that every day and not be afraid when that sense comes, whenever it comes just to go do it. Yeah. Right in that moment. And, you know, so for this, mo- this morning, it already came early in. I was rushing to get to work and I saw my wife and there was just neat sense, man, she needs a, like a, a real hug right now, like a, like a, a long, you know, just embrace. And I'm like, literally, oh, I'm running out the door. I got to, got to get to work. I just went over to her and held her for a little bit. And it didn't really say a word, just told her I loved her. And, you know, it was, you know, two minutes, but just a hug for two minutes. Get a little text from her later. You don't know how much I needed that, you know, today. How did you know? And I want to live the life every day that people ask me that all the time. How do I know? And my answer is because I see you. You know, I really see you right now. Yeah. And is that that's truly it, like helping people be seen. I mean, so many people want to be seen, you know. And so it sounds like, I mean, generally speaking, like this, it first starts with a mindset shift of getting into yeah. this mindset of like seeing people as people. And I, every time I read that in the book, I thought really what he's saying is seeing people as children of God, like really <laughs> like seeing the value of people immediately and recognizing that it's there. Like they were made by the same loving God that I was made by. And so yeah. they're worth interacting with and be and, and seeing. Right. And so like the first step is sort of getting that mindset. And then especially in like a leadership dynamic, when you're, you begin to see people, you avoid dismissing people just because they disagree with you or they're the contrarian in the meeting and they're always bringing something up and they never see it your way. Like, but, but so getting that to seeing them as, as people, but then there's this, the next step is sort of the, the engaging with them. And, and that's sort of a skill set, not so much a mindset, right? It is, but it, it starts there because one of the principles we talk about a book is turn first. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I often hear in conflict is I'll change when they change. I'll do it when they do it. They go first and they show me and build trust and respect. And then I'll, I'll then extend my trust or my reaction, you know, back to them. And turning first is the most dangerous move, right? It's that, it's that moment when thought turns to action. It's that moment when I say, I see you and I don't know how you see me. And I'm not even clear, you know, whether you care or want this, but I'm going to turn towards you right now. And I'm going to offer up space. I'm going to show you love and care and concern. And I don't know how you're going to react. And I don't even know if you want it or if it's going to you know, push you away or what have you. But I'm, I'm going to do it to try to create space between us. 
right? And I can't just feel it. There's something I have to do. But it does start with a feeling. I think this is really important, right? We turn first when we're seeing someone as a person, not hoping that somewhere down the road, it'll help them see me as a person or, you know, whatever. Like the tools can't be tools for the sake of the tool, right? The tools are there to help us connect. And that is the, the end goal, right? If, if in conflict, we're disconnected, then how do I get back to reconnection um, with the person? And I can connect with you, Kurt, and you still not feel connected to me. That mm-hmm. could absolutely happen, right? You're still upset or angry with something. And so you might not feel connected to me, but I could feel connected to you. And by connecting to you that way, I open up a powerful invitation for you to feel drawn to connect back right? Now, whether you do or not, that's your choice. That's ultimately your agency. And, and sometimes that may take days or weeks or, or months or years, you know, for you, depending on what's happened in the past or what's going on. But I want to keep that space open. And so it's exactly like if you think about our heavenly parents for a minute, right? And we think about repentance. We talk about repentance all the time. Heavenly Father's arms are always open. They're always, they're never closed right? I've heard and even felt in my life at times like, oh, how does God see me right now? Or, you know, after that mistake, you know, is there, you know, I'm like a teenager. After that mistake, is there any hope for me? Uh, you know, and I miss seeing God, first of all, in that moment, who absolutely sees hope and potential in me, who absolutely provided his son as a savior to me to through the atonement for me to go right back into that space and whose arms are always open towards me. And so if I want to think about how do I, as a leader, create space, they have to know, everybody that I lead has to know that my arms are continually open towards you. I don't care what you've said or done in the past. I don't care what it is. They're open. And when, you, when you're ready to come, you come, right? We read the story of the Good Samaritan and, and you know, the father's arms were open. Or no, sorry, not the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son. The, the father's arms are open when the prodigal son returns, not closed, no pre-qualifiers, just embraces him and holds a feast. When the older son is upset at the father for doing that and comes to the door, the father invites him into the party as well. My arms are open for you, even though you're actually sinning right now too, by judging your brother and and judging me and and not believing in forgiveness. Even though that's sin right now, my door's still open. The party's, party's here, come in. And for so many people, one of the reasons they're not turning is because they're unsure that that's the case. I don't know how Kurt's going to react. I'm not sure what he's going to say. You know, if I tell him this, you know, how's he going to see me? You know, in the future? so better not. It's just better not to, right? It's too risky. And that's again why it's dangerous, right? Because we're feeling the same thing inside. So who has the courage? Yeah. Right. To yeah. turn first. And it can become very passive aggressive where you're just going to wait it out. Wait till the conflict diffuses. They get released. We move. What? You know, it, the problem will go away yeah. if, if I wait long enough, but there's a deeper level of leadership available to an individual, a deeper level of Christ-like approach when you think, no, I'm, I'm going to engage in this, you know, I'm going to yeah. move forward. So, and you, you talk about this concept of turning, of, yeah. uh, that's sort of one of the, the tactics or skills of being the f- one to first turn, you know, not waiting on them or passive aggressively saying, well, you could have set an appointment with me anytime, you know, I, right. you know, but really being proactive and, and so what was that, what does that actually look like? You know, I, I think of 
you know, being proactive, setting an appointment with somebody. If you, if you're really struggling with your Bishop, set an yeah. appointment with them, go talk with them. If you're, there's yeah. someone in the ward council you struggle with, you know, pull them aside or whatever, Any, anything yeah. else. That comes yeah. And, 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 and by the way, turning first doesn't mean pull them aside and then heap a bunch of blame on them yeah, and tell right. them everything <laughs> that I don't like about you. That's not turning first. That's actually asking someone else to turn towards me. I'm going to lay off all these complaints and then your, your job's to now see that you really screwed up and turned towards me. That's, that's not turning first. Right. So if I were to schedule that appointment, you know, Terry Warner told the story once, and again, he's the founder of Arbinger that, you know, blew me away. And it was within a church setting. He, he told a story this one time that there was this man in his word. He just didn't like, and he didn't have any reason for not liking him. And I don't know if you've ever had a situation like that, but I don't know what it is. There's just a vibe or there's yeah. just something. I just know I don't like you. And we never had any erection. You never did anything to me. I never did anything to you. It was there. And, and Terry was getting ready to move out of the ward. And he was moving out of the ward. He had this impression, I need to go reconcile with this man before I move out of the ward. But his first question is, well, what do I do? Like, it's not like we've ever had a conflict. In fact, I don't even know if this man even knows that I don't like him, right? I mean, you know, all the sort of things came in, but he kept feeling the pressure and he kept saying, okay, I'm going to do it this Sunday. No, this Sunday is last Sunday in the ward. I'm going to do it early. No, don't do it. Ward's out. He's walking out to his car. He sees this man getting his family in his car. And he's still thinking to himself, what in the world am I supposed to do here? Right? But he just walks up to the man and he says he instinctually just feels that he needs to embrace him. So he embraces the man and he starts to sob a little bit. And the man's a little bit confused. And he says, I'm sorry. And the man asks him, well, what for? And he says, for, for loving you less, for loving you less. And then the other man began to sob, you know, and they embraced. And I thought, what a beautiful turn first story, right? You know, there's so many justifications we have in our mind about why we're in conflict with this person and why they deserve it and why they deserve the silent treatment or to not be our friends or whatever. But sometimes it just literally can be, I don't know what the problem here is, but I know that I love them less. Yeah. And maybe that's the thing that I, I confess to in the moment with a commitment that I'm going to try to love you more. Yeah. And I'm sorry because it seems to me in the, in the litany of sins that we commit on a day-to-day basis, not loving one of our brothers and sisters is probably there at the top, but we often don't see it that way. But Jesus talks a lot about it in the scriptures and it, it should be a powerful reminder, reminder to us for paying attention that Jesus was deeply concerned about how we saw each other and how we treated each other and how we cared for each other. And so if I find myself loving someone less, that I go to them and I embrace them and I extend that love and I extend that hand of fellowship yeah. towards them. Yeah, it's so, it's so uh, powerful. And, and, and all of these, I mean, like we all have scenarios or individuals or people who we could see a little more as, as people and as children of God, you know, and, and to lean into that and see where it can take you and, and how you can grow from it. So let me, let me push back for the sake of pushing back for a good conversation here is, sure. is a lot of times it's, uh, you know, yeah, maybe we do have that contrary. And listen, Chad, I've, I've done my turning. I've talked with them. I've tried all these things. But at the end of the day, we got to make decisions as a ward council. And sometimes that conflict just doesn't seem to be resolved, right? And every meeting after meeting, I mean, you just keep bringing this up or there's always this contrarian opinion that takes everything off base when when it's not a big decision. I just make make a decision. So what if like we just can't seem to get the conflict to subside so we can actually get work done? 
Well, my, my first guess, Kurt, if someone came in and told me that, because people tell me that all the time, and this is an unsolvable conflict. Trust me, I've tried. I've tried this, this, and this has <laughs> right. gone on, is that you've tried all the wrong things, is my guess. And, and I'm not talking about your outward behavior. You might have actually ran your meeting perfectly. But if I was seeing brother or sister so-and-so as an object while I was doing it, I was inviting resistance in them, even as I was saying all the right things and doing the right things. So, you know, if I solicit your opinion, Kurt, and I'm seeing you as an object, I might say, thank you very much for that. And I'm going to put it on the board even, uh, right, as a theme. But I'm going to find every way to possibly move away from that because I'm like, oh, my gosh, here's another one of Kurt's dumb ideas again. But if I'm seeing you as a person, when you gave that idea, my first response to you would tell me more about that, Kurt. Why, why is that important to you, right? We get deeply curious about people when we're seeing them as people. We want to know, I call it the seven whys. And you're asking sort of another thing around turning first, right? The seven whys. Keep telling me why. And pretty soon, I'm going to get back this story in your childhood, or I'm going to get back this story you know, about something happened on your mission or whatever that was actually meaningful, impactful, or you know, frankly, some cases traumatic for you that is generating this sort of this response. Once I know that, and I understand the sort of values that are coming at, people's ability to be creative and come up with creative solutions, I feel is pretty infinite. And especially when I have this, you know, in, in the case of LDS councils, I have the spirit with me as well to sort of inspire me. But do I close off the spirit when I don't see the humanity of the people that are in the room when I'm, mm-hmm. uh, when I'm loving less? I think the answer is we do. And so then we're like, we're in stupor, we're in confusion about these things. And so when somebody tells me that, my guess most of the time is I'm doing the outward behaviors the right way, but inwardly I'm wrong. I'm completely wrong hmm. um, towards them. And that's something that people can sense and feel. Now let's say that I get it right though. And I am seeing you as a person. I can see you as a person, we can disagree. We can just come down on two different sides on the issue And we could both love each other and see our humanity and care for each other and just come down on different sides like that. You know, at that point, it requires us to roll up our sleeves and say, okay, where is the common ground? And I don't like the middle ground because I don't think the middle ground is what I'm talking about here, but where's the common ground, right? Where we can start to build and work on the things that we need to work on and disagree on the things that that we disagree about. And I think a a mistake that happens in many cases is that that process often takes time and it takes patience. And often we're not willing to give the time and patience that it takes to do great, great collaboration. We want to move quickly and fast. And the minute that Kurt keeps kind of saying, gosh, I don't really feel that guys. I start to see you as an obstacle. I start to see you as an object. I shut it down. And then what's going to happen is if we plow through with it anyway, is that at that activity, Kurt's not going to be the most helpful you know, person in the room. He's going to be looking for mistakes or flaws that happen in there. He's going to probably be the critic. He's probably going to pull somebody else aside and say, this isn't great, right? Like this isn't what it could be, right? And then, and then in the next house, I talked to a lot of people at that activity. It was kind of disappointing, right? I mean, you know, that's, and then of course, everybody in the room is going to be offended by that. Everybody's going to say, of course, because Kurt didn't get his way. And then the process just continues to grow and grow and grow. And so, you know, this is, I don't mean this, this is sort of, I mean this tongue in cheek, but I also sort of mean this, you know, some of my early work has been with people that a lot of people would consider terrorists. And one of the mistakes that I would often see in peace processes is that if someone behaved really badly or was considered terrorist, we don't invite them to the problem solving session as sort of a sort of punishment. Like we don't condone your bad behavior. And so we're not going to be there. And in the process of doing that, 
while everybody was in the room making their solutions without one of the key parties there, they would blow up something almost as a sort of reminder to you, hey, we're still here. We're still part of this. There's no solution without us. And you know, the reason that people did it is one, because they didn't see the humanity of that group because they deeply disagreed with their behavior. And two, it just seemed like it would go so much faster, right? right. If we didn't have that contrary voice in the room. But what it actually does is delays the whole peace process actually even longer, right? Because the only way forward is together. And so I think it's really interesting, you know, if, and I'm sure you've probably talked about this on your podcast before, but, you know, my understanding of how the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles works on issues is that there's often vehement disagreement in the room about things that, that these apostles all come from different life experiences and, and what have you, and that they don't always see the thing the same way, but they work and work and work to understand people's point of view until the spirit comes and gives them some sort of direction. And, but because they're in tune and because they can feel the spirit that the decisions made by the quorum of the 12 and the first presidency are always unanimous. And I think that there's something really cool about that, but people just think, Oh, because they're apostles, they just all agree or they all just have the same opinion. I don't actually think that's the point. I don't actually think they do. I actually think they have very different opinions about stuff from time to time. It's just that they continue to work. They trust each other. They believe in each other. They get to the point that they've explored everything. And then they take it to the Lord and get that inspiration about where to go. And they trust that, you know, as well. And I think it's a great model for church councils uh, as well. And really, there's a deep doctrinal tradition of unanimity, you know, just like you mentioned in in the Quorum of the Twelve and in other councils that that is highly valued and encourages the unanimity. And really it goes to these core principles that you talk about is when a leader can establish a sense that unity is paramount, that unity is above decisions, is above speed. Like until we can establish unity in this group and really feel like everybody's been heard, been seen, then, and and yeah, that's not exactly how I would have done it if it was up to me, but I feel such unity. I feel like you've heard my point of view. I can now support that. Because you've given me that chance. Exactly. And there isn't systematic where everybody says that I'm heard, but I'm ne- my ideas are never taken or never, yeah. right? You know, there's, there's a way where, yes, I hear you, but, you know, if it's meeting 27 and you're batting O for 27, the rest of the council is doing something wrong, hmm. right? That, that we probably aren't actually hearing you or valuing you the way, you know, that we need to. But that, that's exactly right. When people do feel heard and valued and seen they are willing to make all sorts of adjustments, you know, to things and to positions that they've had on things or whatever, when they feel truly heard and seen and respected in that process. And this is the thing, we can't fake that. Hmm. We can't just say the right words. There's no magic word to say, okay, brother Kurt, I see you. I hear you. We're good. Now moving on. It has to be at a deeper level, right? And you have to be able to feel that from them. And how do we feel that? We feel that through relationship. We feel that through the hard work that comes from intentionally building relationship, intentionally listening and learning from you, being able to communicate back what I've learned from you and what I've heard from you over and over again. We just can't fake it. And I think for many of us, that pharisaical tendency comes out to, I will live the law outwardly, but inwardly, uh, my heart is at war. Mm. And it won't work. It doesn't work at home. It doesn't work, you know, at jo- in your job. It doesn't work in your community. And it's certainly not going to work within the confines of the church to have our hearts be at war with each other 
while we profess all of the right things uh, coming out of our mouth. Yeah. And, you know, to really apply a lot of these principles you talk about, I guess, you know, I think it rings true with, with everyone. I mean, it's ringing true with me and my heart. And it's like, absolutely. But I think what you'll notice, and maybe you can agree with this or disagree, but the application of it can be really messy in the beginning. It's, it's not like you can't just do it. You can't just flip a switch and say, here we go. Like it takes practice, right. To establish that meeting that really is hearing people and seeing people and treating everybody as, as the people they are. Sometimes, you know, you're not going to just do it this next word council you do, but it's a worthwhile journey to take, to, to read books like yours, to, to engage, to build a skill set, because that's where true leadership is found, right? It takes intentionality, right? I wrote this book and I struggle with dangerous love. I have teenagers. Sometimes I'm just like, (laughs) you know, and I, and and I'm not seeing them the way that I need to see them. And every time that I do that, I create damage in the relationship, damage that takes a while to bring it back. And especially because my family especially knows that I know these principles, that I profess them, that I believe them to be true, but I'm, I'm not perfect. And so, yeah, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to screw this up, you know, at times. But I think, it, again, it's that humility to be able to say, oh, you know, darn it. I've seen them as an object right there. I, that wasn't helpful. That probably actually just created another 10 to 20 feet of distance, you yeah. know, between me and Brother Kurt. And now I need to just own up to that quickly and sort of move back. I need to just repent and start to, re, you know, reconnect that, you know, relationship. And I really think that, you know, maybe this is a you know great point to end, you know, the same, the stigma that we have around, around conflict is the same one that we have around, you know, sinning. And, you know, I see it a little differently, you know, repentance is a gift. It's not something that I should be afraid of or something that I, I should be afraid to use in my life. Instead of putting shame around using the repentance process, I see it as this, this glorious opportunity to make what was not right, right. Again, it's a gift. And so, you know, our lives should be spent repenting, right? Using this gift, not measuring our lives by whether we have to use it or not, but how quickly and we're willing to embrace it and use it might be a better measurement of really, you know, our connection to the Lord. And one way that I think that we could all use it better is it's not just for when I had that slip up with the word of wisdom, or, you know, I had to slip up and I said the swear word, or, you know, I, I wasn't as honest as I should have been in my business dealings, all of which are really important. But when I'm not right in my relationships, right, how do I use repentance in that way to help make things that are wrong, right? Because, you know, we can be right on all the outward commandments, but if we're wrong in our relationships, if we're wrong in the one thing that endures through eternity, if we're wrong in this one thing that connects us together as people, as humanity, as children of God, if we're wrong in this one thing, what does it matter whether we're right in any of the other things, right? That I belong to the right organization, but I'm wrong in the deepest sense of what this organization stands for or what it's about that I claim my Christianity, but in many ways, my actions and my thoughts and my beliefs are so far, you know, from what Christ's are and towards, you know, other people, what ultimately is the point. And so that makes my faith hard, but it's a good hard. It's a growing hard. It's a, it's a hard that requires accountability out of me and requires intentionality 
um, out of me. It means I need to be thinking every day about these most important things, these relationships with my family, with my friends, with my ward, and I need to be working on them. And when I fail and when I mess up, that I repent, that I seek forgiveness from them and from the Lord, and I pick myself back up and I go again. There's this line that I love. It's not scriptural. It's from Mumford and Sons, but it's a, a, a Christian band that says, it is not the long walk home that will change my, my heart. It's the welcome I receive at every start. Mm. And, you know, this beautiful idea to me, both in my relationship with my Heavenly Father, that no matter how many times I mess up, there's that welcome I receive every time that I pick back up and try again. This loving sort of welcome that comes. And how do I offer that grace? You know, that same sort of grace that I don't deserve, but that is given to me by this loving Heavenly Father to everyone in my life? How do I extend that beyond myself to others? Man, this is a, such a fantastic discussion. So two questions just to wrap things up. Uh, one being, uh, if people do want to know more about the book and to get it and read it, and I highly rec- recommend it. I read it myself. Where would you send them? And how can they learn more about you? Yeah. So the book's available anywhere that you get books, but you can go to dangerouslovebook.com. And you'll see links to it being on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. We have an audio book, we have an ebook, and we have it in paperback as well. I read the audio book. And so if you like to listen to books, that might be a great uh, way forward. There's also a podcast on dangerouslovebook.com uh, where I've brought in experts in different areas of conflict. And so we have a dangerous parenting and we have a dangerous uh, several ones on marriage and we have some on workplace sort of settings. We have some in a lot of the social stuff that's going on right, right now. We even have law enforcement officers on so, sort of thinking about dangerous love and law enforcement and dangerous love and Black Lives Matter. And you know, so many different areas that you probably can find something that's applicable to you as well, as well as a blog that's going to talk through, you know, some things as well. But you know, look, whether you know reading the book or whatever, the book is meant, there's a bunch of exercises in the book to really sort of help us along this process. And so, you know, I, I didn't write the book for people to read it. I wrote it for them to use it. And, you know, my hope is that they, it becomes a, a way for them to think through a relationship or two in their life that they want to improve. And if you follow the steps in the book, I've had so much success with so many people that I've worked with, including in my own life of when I follow those steps, it happens. The magic happens. Uh, something that I don't think is possible can change. And man, in our world, in our time today, what does the world need more than anything else than us building those bridges and reconnecting with the people that we feel, you know, estranged with, loving our enemies in the deepest sense, you know, of the world again? You know, that's our way out of the mess that we're in in so many situations in our world right now. It's not hating our enemy, it's loving him. Yeah. And last question I have, I, you know, we've talked a lot in the context of like uh, one-to-one interactions or, or conflict or even, you know, a small group of, you know, ward council or council of, of some type, what final encouragement would you have for the leader who's trying to unify his ward or his yeah. quorum, you know, a l- much larger group where, yeah, you may be the leader that can turn first, but uh, how do you stimulate others starts turning towards each other? Talk about it. I know this sounds crazy in our conflict adverse church. Talk about what a Zion ward would look like. Think about the principles that exist in Zion where people are of one heart and one mind and there is no, you know, no poor among them. What would that look like in our, our ward? How do we become more intentional as ward members, both with ourselves? And I actually think a very critical point, Kurt, 
not just with ourselves, but our ward contains a geographic area that includes many people that are not members of our church. Our bishops preside over an area that does include the, the ward members, but also includes many other people. And how does part of building Zion also reaching out to them, finding ways to build relationships, finding ways to collaborate, to work together, to see each other in ways that, that they aren't, um, that our ward becomes this space every Sunday for us to think about these ideas and these principles and how to live into them in our day-to-day life. And instead of you know spending our time congratulating ourselves or, or patting ourselves on the back because we have the truth or talking about you know how fun everybody in the ward is, that we're constantly thinking about who's the marginalized people in our ward right now? Who's not here? Who's hurting? Who's suffering? How do we live into this? Who do I hold a grudge with right now? Who am I not making the council the best that it can? Because I, every time they say something, I immediately, you know, oppose it. And I think for bishops, you know, part of this is, is raising this to the forefront because, you know, a lot of people say like, when they read my book, I want to throw it across the room. Like I I almost hate you for showing me this, right? Because now that I see it, I recognize there's work that I have to do. And so don't be conflict adverse as a bishop or as a stake president either. Like our goal is the building up of Zion and we won't do it by osmosis. We won't do it just by saying that's our goal. Like we do it by figuring out what are the steps to get there and how do we start doing that in our homes, which is a critical place, right? We're building Zions in our homes, then on our LDS community and our wards and our stakes, but then extending it beyond those communities into our communities and, and I think you'll find that the principles in dangerous love work equally well there as they do in an individual with a child or what have you. But you have to start talking about it and you have to start saying to ourselves, look, we're going to acknowledge that maybe as a ward, we're in sin right now. And that's okay because we've got an atonement <laughs> uh, to work, but this is how the repentance process works. We acknowledge it. We feel remorse for it we seek mercy from our heavenly father. And then we put in place practices to make sure that it never happens again. And probably never happens again. is probably too big of a step in, in itineration one, but we start putting those practices in place to stop it from continuing to happen at the same way again and again and again. And there's so much opportunity for our faith. You know, there's not a lot of uh, people that have my profession that are LDS and and in fact, in, uh, you know, I was at the, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate gathering in Barcelona a few years ago. And when people found out I was LDS, they're like, you're the first Mormon that I'd, you know, ever yeah. really counted before. You know, I just surprised, you know, tell me about it. And, you know, my story about our faith, which I, I recognize as mine because uh, of my life experiences or whatever, is one about building Zion, is one about bringing peace to each other and to the world. It's a cautionary tale in the Book of Mormon about what happens when we don't do it, when we fail to see the humanity of each other and what can happen. And as, you, as we're all plowing through Mormon right now and, and reading his laments right now, what happens when we fail at this and the, and the heartache and the sorrow that it causes, that we've learned from our own history and own mistakes, what happens when people don't see us as people and and when we've struggled to do that as well, and that, and whether it's our pioneer story or what have you, we have been the people that at times have been the marginalized, the people that have not been seen as people or as humans. Like we've, we've lived that experience together. 
but we have this powerful story, this cosmology about that we were all in heaven together, that we all came and that we were all brothers and sisters, that we came to this earth to learn this experience and to grow from it. And, and even in this sort of radical brokenness and disconnectedness that we experience when we come down, our job is to reconnect. And whether we do that through genealogy, which is awesome, right? It's awesome that we're linking the chains through genealogy, but we should also be doing it in relationship as well, turning our hearts towards our fathers and our mothers and turning our hearts towards our neighbors as well. But there's something beautiful in our faith that lies at the essence, I think, of what we can accomplish in this world if we just see it. And so, you know, I'm a huge advocate for what our faith has to bring to the table and to offer around this area of peace and conflict resolution. I I really believe there's a lot, a lot that's there for us to offer if we'll embrace it. All right, that concludes my interview with Chad Ford. Uh, I hope you benefited from this. I know I did. This is one of those where it's so fun to read a book that I really enjoy and then get to talk with the author. And so now that you've heard the author, you should really go check out this book. You will love it and, and it will be very applicable and very helpful for any leadership calling that you're in. And the reality is, is, as parents or in a family, we're all in these situations where we find some opportunities for some dangerous love, some risk that we need to lean into. So definitely check out his book where you buy books, which I guess is Amazon. Do people buy books from other places? I don't know. There's Desert Book. Shout out to our friends at Desert Book. I'm sure this will be somewhere on those bookshelves as well. But uh, Amazon's a good place for it too. And if there is any uh, question, follow-up, I'd love to do maybe a follow-up interview, maybe through on Facebook Live or Instagram Live, whatever and ask him some of these questions. I'd love to hear some real life scenarios where you think, nope, Chad, listen, I found the one scenario where conflict exists that it cannot be diffused. Conflict exists and it is contentious and it's ugly and I just, I must ignore it, right? Obviously there are situations of abuse and tyranny and those things, but like day to day, I would love to hear those scenarios so that we could share them with with Chad and see if he can help us out. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, We were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.